what a great series we've been doing uh, this last little while. Simply Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Uh, isn't that good? And um, what a privilege it is for me to kind of try and round off the series today. Um, I want to remind you what we've looked at in the series so far. We've looked at Jesus is God. That was the first one. Look, Jesus is life. Jesus is friend and advocate. Jesus is truth. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is justice and mercy. Jesus is rescuer. Those are the ones we've done. There's a whole load more we could have done. We could go on, we could have gone. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is our healer. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the ultimate intercessor. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the bread of life. And on and on and on and on. And what, which one do you like best? Which is your favorite? All of them. Which is your favorite title or attribute of Jesus? All right, I just want you to think about that and turn to your neighbor, turn to your neighbor and say, my favorite title of Jesus, attribute of Jesus is Jesus is whatever it is, okay? Just turn to your neighbor, 30 seconds. What's your favorite? Did you share some interesting things? Were you all agreeing or saying something different? <laughs> Completely different? There's so many titles, so many attributes that Jesus has, right? And um, we could have gone on for months and months and months um, on this. Um, but um, today, uh, we're talking about Jesus is Lord. What a great way to sum it up. Jesus is Lord of all and uh, ruler of all. And uh, he demands our allegiance as Lord. And uh, I'm going to go through today uh, three parts of this talk uh, the main bit is Revelation 5. We're going to look at the scene in heaven there. But before we get there, I want to talk about Jesus' own favorite title. Do you know what that is? Right? We're going to talk about Jesus' own favorite title for himself. All right? Then we'll get to the scene in heaven. And then we'll talk a bit about the implications for us. So I want to start, first of all, by looking at Daniel chapter 7. And if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn there. But if you haven't got a Bible, I'm going to put the main passages up on here. And I've been looking at Daniel, studying Daniel recently. And uh, I got to Daniel 7. And, I'm, and I've looked at it quite a lot. And I've decided, gosh, Daniel 7 has got to be the most important chapter in the whole of the Old Testament. And I wouldn't have said that before. But I'm saying it today because I think it's Jesus' favorite passage. I think it's John's favorite passage. I even think it's Paul's favorite passage. And so there's so much in Daniel chapter 7 that I hadn't realized until quite recently. So if you look at Daniel 7, okay, and I'm not going to read the whole passage because it's a bit too long today. All right, what happens in Daniel 7 is he has a vision. And uh, he has a vision of these various beasts coming one after another. And they're interpreted later on to be various kingdoms or empires. And the first one is Babylon, which is where Daniel is in at that time. And then the second one is Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. And so he succeeds these succession of empires over 500 years that Daniel sees and prophesies uh, through this vision. And living in Babylon, he sees this vision about 10 years before Babylon collapses overnight. In one night, it's gone. Read about it in Daniel chapter 5. 
okay? It's disappearing. And then he's seen, but even the next one is not going to last forever. It's going to be one after that that's Greece. And even that's not going to last. It's going to be one after that, Rome. And, but in all of that, God is working his purposes. God is ruling over it all. And so don't lose the fact that God knows this is happening. He's in charge. He's totally working through it. And of course, we're living in a time now where there's a bit of shaking of empires, isn't there? A bit of shaking around of the nations. And we think, God, what are you doing? And I don't know, right, what God's doing. And, and it is evil and it's horrible, right? And it's causing an awful lot of suffering and pain and difficulty. And we need to pray and give and all of that kind of thing. But at the same time, the message from Daniel is God is totally working out. God is totally on it. He's working through it. There are lots of stories of working, of God working uh, in Ukraine and around Ukraine as well at the moment. And so God's totally in control. And in the midst of this vision, with all these various beasts, um, we have this, right, from verse uh, 9 of Daniel chapter 7. I looked, and thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames, and his wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out before him. And thousands of thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and books were opened. Just think about this, right? He, Daniel gets to see into the throne room of heaven, right? He gets to see into the throne room of heaven. And what does he see there? He actually sees more than one throne, which is, you're not expecting that, right? You're expecting one throne. There's more than one throne there, okay? What's going on there? Well, part of that thought for a minute, I'll come back to it. More than one throne there. I haven't even kept up with my notes here. Getting too carried away. Um, and there's 10,000 times 10,000 angels uh, worshipping the creator God, the almighty God. And he's got all these symbols of white hair for wisdom and so on. The ancient of days is there. And it's a court scene. And books are opened. And there's judgment. And the point is the empires are going to get judged. Right? You know, at the end of the day, the empires are going to get judged. All the nations are going to get judged. Justice is going to come. It might not look like it now, but it is going to happen. And then um, we go on uh, into verse 13 and 14, and uh, he says, I saw in the night visions, you may remember, by the way, Bryn read this last week in church. Um, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So Daniel sees this human-like figure, right? He says, well, like a son of man. The phrase son of man means human usually, but this is something not just human. It's a human-like figure. One like a son of man, because it can't just be a human, because how can a human go into the throne room of God? How does that happen? If, if a human goes into the throne room of God, you either die or you fall down prostrate worship. That's what you do. And this is not what this son of man figure does. This son of man figure goes into the throne room of God, and he's welcomed, and, he's, and he comes close, and he's led into his presence, and then he's given authority, and he's given power. 
And, he's, and it says, all nations worship him. In the book of Daniel, you don't worship anything else but God. Right? The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were prepared to go to the fire instead of worship an idol. Right? You only worship God. You only worship God. This son of man is God. That's clear. Absolutely definite. This son of man is God. And he gets a kingdom. Every nation, people, and language worship him. It doesn't even say Jews and Gentiles. Every nation, people, and language worship the Son of Man. Everyone. Every person. And he's given authority. Authority. And the nations are judged by the Son of Man. This Son of Man. All the world is judged by this Son of Man. And he's given a kingdom. And it's an eternal kingdom. It's emphasized. It's an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. It will never, never, never be destroyed. Contrast all the other kingdoms, right? Contrast all of the animals and beasts he's been talking about. They're all going to pass away. All the kings we have today, they're all going to pass away. But there's going to be a new kingdom, and that kingdom won't pass away. That kingdom will go on forever and ever. And that is the kingdom of this Son of Man. No wonder, Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite title. Did you know that? Right? That's Jesus' favorite title. This is Jesus' favorite passage, right? Because this passage says, when Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, he's saying, I am Lord. I am Lord. I have authority over all the world. I'm going to be worshipped by every nation and people and tribe. I'm going to establish a kingdom that will never end. Everlasting kingdom. I am Lord over the whole world. And do you know what? He uses this title 79 times in the Gospels. Way more than anything else. Way more. Way more than any other passage that he ever references. It's Daniel 7. Way more. You think of Messiah. He agrees he's the Messiah as well. He only uses that 11 times of himself, right? Son of man, 79 times. Messiah, 11 times. Think of son of God, five times. Son of David, one time. And you've got all these other titles, bread of life, light of the world, once each, okay? Son of man, right? It's his favorite thing because he's saying, when he says son of man, he's saying, I'm the Lord. Let's just look at some of those. I'm going to go through 79, just a few, okay? When Jesus before the high priest, right? And the high priest said, are you the Messiah? Jesus said, I am, and you'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's Daniel 7, isn't it, right? And, and, um, and sitting at the right hand of God, that's the thrones. And when Jesus says that, that's the accusation, that's blasphemy. You're saying you're God, right? You're saying you're the Lord. That's blasphemy. Jesus was crucified for saying he is the Son of Man. He didn't want to be uh, crucified just for being Messiah, because people could confuse that and just think that's a human title or a political title. Son of Man, you can't confuse it. Son of Man, that's saying I'm Lord. That's saying I'm God. And he, he references, you know, look at these couple of other times here, when Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. Can you see Daniel 7? Yeah, all the angels with him, thrones again. Every time Jesus talks about coming again, he says it's the Son of Man. It's the Son of Man coming with the clouds. Look at this. He's given him authority because he's the Son of Man. 
Remember in the Son of Man, he's given authority, right? He's got authority because he's the Son of Man. No one has ascended into heaven except he descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is about someone who comes from the clouds of heaven to the earth. He's saying, that's me. That's me. I am this Lord. And so having looked at that a bit, we can go now into Daniel, sorry, Revelation um, chapter 5, which is all about um, this magnificent scene in heaven uh, where Jesus is worshipped. And if you look at the context of Daniel 5, it's, it's one vision, Revelation, Daniel, Revelation, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, it's all one vision. And in Revelation 4, it says a door in heaven is opened. Imagine that, right? Imagine seeing a, a door open to heaven, right? And, and John, in Revelation, sees this vision, and, and there's the four living creatures and the 24 elders, and there's 24 thrones. And by the way, Daniel, back in Daniel 7, he says, I wrote down a summary or the sum of the vision. In some translation, it says that's a summary. So he's just summarizing what he saw. And I think Daniel probably saw the same as what John saw. 24 thrones, living, living animals, um, the 24 elders, all of that kind of stuff. And John's expanding on it um, in Revelation chapter 4 and in Revelation chapter 5. And then we get to Revelation chapter 5. And let's just see what happens. So here's, here's the first uh, five verses. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. What a passage. What a passage. There's this scroll at the beginning there. What is that scroll? Well, I think that's actually coming from Daniel again, but Daniel chapter 12 this time. Daniel chapter 12, Daniel's told that there's going to be real trouble and tribulation at the end of time, but he's told to put it in a scroll and seal it up. And this is that scroll that has been sealed up, and it's sealed up in that way. But at the same time, it's also, with the seven seals there, Roman wills had seven seals on them. So it's kind of like a will or an inheritance or a testament. And John knows that this is like God's plan. This is how God is going to resolve things and sort things out. And by the way, if you look at it, the scrolls are open in chapter 6 and chapter 8. And basically, it's the rest of Revelation. It's what's going to happen at the end times. And John's, John hears about this scroll and sees it, and nobody is worthy to open it. Nobody. Nobody anywhere is, is able to open this scroll. And John weeps. Why does he weep? John weeps. Nobody can open this scroll because he knows there's suffering on the earth. He knows he's writing in a time of persecution, living in a time of persecution of Christians. He's like, God, you've got to come and sort this out. You've got to come and sort it out. Somebody's got to come and sort it out. We need the inheritance of the saints. That's what this scroll is. We need it. It's got to be opened. Come on, God. And there's weeping in heaven. 
right? Revelation 21, there's no more tears. Here in Revelation 5, there's weeping in heaven, right? There's weeping in heaven, and there's weeping in heaven today over the suffering, over the tribulation, over the evil, over the injustice, over warfare, over all this stuff. There's weeping in heaven, even today. And John weeps, and he actually weeps loudly. He weeps intensely. He's emotionally very affected by it. And yet, you know, sometimes in our weeping, and it's appropriate for us to cry and grieve and feel sorrow over suffering and injustice and all of the evil in the world, sometimes it's only through our weeping we get to see Jesus. Isn't that true? Sometimes, right? And that's actually what happens to John here. In his weeping, his weeping is heard. And the angel comes and says, don't weep anymore. Don't weep anymore because, because, because what? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah is coming. The lion, well, that's another title we could have got. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Whoa, that sounds scary. Right? Jesus has triumphed. This is Jesus victorious. This is Jesus the conqueror. This is Jesus the one who's beaten death, who's beaten death by rising from the dead. This is Jesus who's conquered sin. This is Jesus who's paid the price. This is Jesus who's defeated Satan and defeated all the demonic effects around the whole world and the whole universe. This is Jesus who's triumphed. It says he has triumphed. He has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. Jesus, the Lion of Judah. Yes, amen. Hallelujah. How many of you are familiar with the story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Anybody else? Okay, some of you are aware of that story. It's a famous story written by C.S. Lewis, and it's a kind of, it's a fantasy, children's fantasy story, and, but it is a parable of Christianity in there. And the, the character that represents Jesus is a lion, and it's, his name is Aslan. And uh, he ends up dying and then rising from the dead. So it's very clear, kind of parallel with Jesus. And yet, um, in the passage, in the, in the book there, when, when the children are first discovering who Aslan is, they're a bit shocked to find he's a lion. Whoa, what do you mean he's a lion? Let me just read what happens. Um, somebody says to the children, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, says Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I'll tell you. And that's like Jesus. Isn't that like Jesus? Right? Of course he isn't safe. Right? He's scary. He's triumphed. Right? You can't stand before him without being a bit scared. Right? Who can? This is the Lion of Judah. Right? He's the King of Kings. He's the ruler of all. He's the Lord of Lords. He's triumphed. He's victorious. Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus, not Jesus, John. John is there in heaven. And he's heard about this lion. Whoa, this lion. God, what's this lion going to be like? Right? So he's looking around for this lion and a bit nervous, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah is going to come. And what does he see? What does he see? 
He sees a lamb. He sees a lamb. Who can be scared of a lamb? Right? What's scary about a lamb? Right? A little fluffy, cute little a lamb. A lamb. Jesus, again, the Lamb of God, right? Another title we could have said, right? That's what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? All of those lambs, the thousands of lambs you've been sacrificing every Passover, this is the Lamb. This is the one that actually will take away the sins. Those sacrifices just pointed to it just represented that there's a price to be paid. Innocent life will have to pay for this. Innocent lamb representing innocent life of Jesus. The lamb of God. Let's read it. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircling, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits, of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bells of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. He's expecting a lion, and he sees a lamb. Not just any old lamb, a dead lamb. A lamb, a lamb that's been slain. It's got the slaughter marks on its neck. And yet it's a dead lamb standing. It's standing. It's beaten death. It's come out of death. It's conquered death. But it's been sacrificed. It's obviously been sacrificed. And it's got these horns. That's from Daniel 7 as well. Not the passage I read, but in another bit of Daniel 7. Horns represent authority. And the eyes representing all-seeing omniscience and the spirit of God. And he takes the scroll and he sits on a throne at the right hand of him who sits on the throne. He sits on the throne, another Daniel 7 kind of image. And he is the one who's worthy. He's the one who's worthy to open the scroll because he sacrificed himself in this way. And the angelic beings start to worship. They fall down and worship. They fall down and worship what? A lamb. A lamb, the lamb of God. They fall down and worship him. Let's hear what they say. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. Just get that. Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. They sing a song, songs in heaven, new songs New songs in heaven. There's going to be new songs in heaven, folks. Let's get doing new songs here as well. Songs. And they say you're worthy to open the scroll. Worthy, why? Because he sacrificed. Worthy, why? Because he purchased us. Right? He paid a price. He paid a price of his own life for us. He paid it. He was willing to sacrifice it for us. He ransomed, paid for it. And notice what it says, right? People from every tribe, language, people, and nation. That's Daniel 7 again, isn't it? Daniel 7 again. Every people, all people, and the saints will reign. That's another bit of Daniel 7, not one I read. The saints will reign in Jesus' kingdom that he sets up that will last forever and ever. 
And when it goes on, they go on to say, and then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. This, this amazing scene of worship is just beginning here in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy. It's thousands and thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. It's Daniel 7 again, isn't it? That scene. Okay, these angels all around. Okay, thousands and thousands. This is the biggest number they can think of. 10,000 times 10,000. Today we'd say trillion times a trillion or a billion times a billion, something like that. Millions and millions and millions and millions of angels worshipping the Lord Jesus. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Power, wealth, wisdom, all of that stuff. And it goes on. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worship. It's hard to capture this scene in words, isn't it? Right? Every creature in heaven Every creature on earth, every creature under the earth, every creature in the sea, in case you thought that was escaping as well. Right? Everything, everything worshipping Jesus. Everything praising God and praising the Lamb forever, power forever and ever. That's Daniel 7 again. Every single creature um, is there. And so why they worship? Because he's worthy, because He's Lord because he's sacrificed, because he's purchased, and all of that. So let's now think a bit about what this means for us today. You can't talk about Jesus as Lord without looking at Philippians 2, which links in with this passage of Revelation 5 as well. So just let me read this passage as well. It talks about Jesus and says, being found in appearance as a man. Stop there a minute. In appearance as a man. Reminds you of anything, right? Daniel 7, like a son of man. It's Daniel 7 again. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see that, everyone. One day every knee will bow. There's a song like that, isn't there? One day every tongue will confess. That includes your family. That includes your boss at work. That includes Boris Johnson. That includes Keir Starmer. That includes Joe Biden. It includes... Putin, includes uh, every political leader, every politician, every business person, every health worker, every single person, every single person, all your friends and relatives, every person, one day, they will bow down at knowledge, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The only question is whether they do it willingly or unwillingly. 
That's the only question, right? Everyone one day will bow down and worship Jesus as Lord. Do you know this last week, actually the week, yeah, last week, Tuesday a week ago, I was in the pub and I got chatting to a couple of punters in the pub, as you do. And, um, and I bumped into these two guys. They looked like they're in their 60s. And they said they've been friends since they were 13 years old. So a bit of a pair, these two. And um, quickly they discovered I'm a Christian. Maybe I didn't hide it very well, I don't know. Um, and do you know, quite early in the conversation, they said to me, how do you become a Christian? They didn't say, how did you become a Christian? They said, how do you become a Christian? How, like, how does one become a Christian? So I said, well, do you know, Jesus was talking one time with a Pharisee called Nicodemus, and he said, you must be born again. And they said, what does that mean? I said, that's a good question, because Nicodemus thought that as well. What on earth does that mean? You know, what it means is you're going to ask Jesus to forgive you and let you start again. That's what it means. You're going to say, Jesus, please forgive me for all the things that I've done wrong in my life against you. Thank you that you died on a cross to pay for all of that. Please help me start afresh by following you. That's what it means to be born again. And do you know what? They both sort of seemed to think that made sense, right? They didn't object to this. It's obviously the first time they'd heard it, and they sort of nodded away, you know? So I said to the one guy, so what's stopping you from becoming a Christian? And he stopped, and he said, do you know what? That's a really good question. That's what he said to me, right? And he'd, early in the conversation, he said, the older I get, the more I think about God. And I said to him, look, you've said yourself you're aging. This is the most important question in your life. Are you going to get right with God or not? I left him to think about that and asked the other chap, what's stopping you from becoming a Christian? <laughs> right? He said, it's the gay thing. I said, okay, so here's the deal, right? Christians have always taught that marriage is between a man and a woman and sex is for marriage. That's it. Sex is for marriage. It's not for anybody's just going to do with whoever they want to. Right? And they both sort of seem to recognize, at least respect that. But this guy wanted to discuss it a bit more. He wanted to push back a bit. So we discussed it a bit more, and we had a bit of a conversation about it. And he said, at one point in the conversation, he said, well, so what happens if I have extramarital sex? Does that mean I'm damned? I said, no, you can be forgiven because Jesus died for you on the cross. He said, all right, does that mean I can have sex with one person and then ask for forgiveness and then sex with the second person and ask for forgiveness and then sex with the third person? And I said, listen, Jesus sees your heart. He knows whether you really mean it or not when you ask for forgiveness. This is not something you can mess about with. And he immediately backed down at that point, right? And so we carried on discussing it and there came a point where I said to him, listen, what makes you think you know better than God on this? What makes you think that? Right? And of course, he didn't have an answer to that. But I think people need to realize that that's actually where they stand. Right? They're saying, I know better than God when they say this. And we had a longer conversation. And it came out that he was actually an artist by profession. He writes music and stuff like this. I said, why, why don't you think God, why do you think it's not God that's given you these creative gifts so that you can use them to glorify him? And he said, that's a good point, actually. I do think that. And I do try and use my gifts to glorify God. And in the end, he said, listen, 98% I agree with Christianity, and 2% I don't. And I said to him, listen, what you need to do is surrender that 
right? Because when God comes to you, he's not going to say, do you know what, I agree with everything you think. Right? That is not the way it works, right? When God comes to you, he's going to say, yeah, you're right about some things, but on other things, I know better than you, right? And every Christian has to surrender to God and say, okay, God, you know best, I surrender to you. That's what it means to be a Christian. You decide to surrender to God. And we're talking about Jesus is Lord. And that is one of the first things we need to do in response to that is surrender, surely. Jesus is Lord. What we've got to do, we've got to surrender. We've got to surrender. We've got to surrender our lives, surrender our ambitions, surrender our dreams, surrender our relationships, surrender our finances, surrender and say, okay, God, you know best. Okay, God, I, I just want to do what you want to do. I just want to glorify you in the way you want me to do that, not my own, my own silly ideas, whatever they might be. I need to surrender uh, to him and worship him. We do, you know, that's the second thing we need to do um, is worship. And then the other thing is recognize no other God. You know, there was a, in court last year in Scotland, uh, the QC, the barrister, stood up and she made her opening statement with these words. She said this, my notice of argument makes no apology for starting with a statement. And that is, Jesus is Lord. Because that encapsulates the issue as far as the petitioners are concerned. The Scottish minister presented 27 church leaders and many more ministers, church elders, and ordinary members of congregations as a deep crisis. As Christians, their primary allegiance is to God and not to the state. And there's a fundamental obedience in regular communal worship. She said, Jesus is Lord, and that means we have to obey Jesus over anyone else. Right? And if the state says, you can't do something that Jesus said you must do, well, you want to do. You follow Jesus, right? If your boss says, you need to lie about this, what do you do, right? You follow Jesus, because Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is the highest authority. Jesus is the Lord of, of your workplace. He's the Lord of this whole nation. He's the Lord of the whole world. We surrender to him. Our allegiance is to him. And in the end, in this case, by the way, they won. Right? And the Scottish government was ruled to be illegally closing down churches and saying you can't worship Jesus. It's wrong to say you can't worship Jesus. Of course it is. Right? We have to worship Jesus. We must worship Jesus. And we must follow Jesus over everything else. We must put Jesus first. Right? Always. First. Yeah. We must decide in our hearts, right, I'm going to do what Jesus says not necessarily what man says. If there's a conflict, it's Jesus, because Jesus is Lord. I hope there isn't a conflict, but if there's a conflict, it's going to be Jesus I'm going to follow. I'm going to speak the truth about things, because Jesus is Lord. I'm going to give my life for Jesus and surrender to him and worship him. Let's stand and respond to this. So I just want you to pause for a minute and think, okay, Jesus is Lord. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Is he Lord of all of your life? Is there, is there 2% that you haven't surrendered yet to Jesus? Because if there is, today's the day. Jesus is saying, I want you to surrender again. Surrender that 2% today, right now. Is there 2% in your life that you haven't surrendered and you need to surrender or do you need to make a fresh commitment to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and to say, I'm going to follow him no matter what. I'm going to follow him 
no matter what. I'm going to follow him over every other authority. I'm going to follow Jesus. Is there a fresh commitment that you need to make? Just give you a few minutes, a few seconds. Just think about that yourself in your heart. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you to raise a hand if you know you need to surrender afresh to Jesus. If you know you need to recommit to following Jesus as Lord completely of your life. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. I'm not going to ask you to come out to the front. I'm not going to ask you to be prayed for or anything like that. You can be prayed for. You want to be prayed for. But just in a minute, I'm going to ask you if you need to surrender afresh completely to Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. So let's do that now. If you need to surrender, raise a hand and surrender to Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Hallelujah. Surrender to Jesus. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we just acknowledge you afresh in our lives today. We just want to say, Lord, we love you. We acknowledge you. We worship you. We honor you. We say, Lord, take our lives. Take who we are. Take our dreams. Take our ambitions. Take our ideas, our thoughts. We surrender them to you, Lord Jesus. We surrender them to you. We want to say, Lord, we honor you. We want to worship you. We want to follow you completely, completely, Lord Jesus. Whatever you want to do with us, Lord Jesus, whatever you want to do, even as Jesus said, not what I will, but what you will, we want to say that as well. Not what I will, but what you will in our lives, Lord Jesus. We just want to honor you and glorify you in whatever way you choose for us. And Lord, for those of us today who are renewing, refreshing, going deeper in a commitment today, we just want to say, Lord, come and seal those commitments now in Jesus' name. Come and seal them. Come and make it real. Come and make it a day that people look back on. Come and hold us accountable in our prayers for this day when we've committed to follow you. Hold us accountable for it, Lord. Make it something that lasts and makes a difference because we want to surrender now today in a way that matters and a way that lasts in a way that makes a real powerful difference. In Jesus' name, amen.